Good morning. Uh, if you're wondering, I did break a finger, um, so this doesn't distract you. Um, I, we thought it was a good idea for some guys to get together and play some football in the rain, and this is the result of that. In two weeks, hopefully I'll get it off and I'll be ready for the turkey bowl, so if you guys are there, we'll be ready. Um, also, just so you guys know, the ladies in this church, we are having our first ever Eve Set Free conference this Saturday, so if you haven't registered yet, register now, uh, save your seats, I think there's room, uh, so please, please uh, be there, it's going to be great. I think we have about 70 people there. You get some free books, and you get a lot of great preaching, a lot of good resources, so it'll be great. All right. Have you ever been in a position where you're competing against somebody or um, going against somebody, and no matter what you did, how hard you tried or uh, how hard you trained or um, whatever effort you put in, you can never seem to get further than them. They always seem to have one step further than you, or always uh, one stride past you, or always edged you out at the finish line. Have you ever been in that situation? Uh, in seventh grade, I was invited to play on the eighth grade boys volleyball team. All right, you guys are all from Massachusetts, most of you. I know what you're thinking. Isn't volleyball a girl sport, right? I'm not even going to entertain that question. What I want you guys to do is go YouTube men's Olympic volleyball and go see what they do. And if you can tell me you can do that, then I will concede that volleyball is a girl's sport. Okay? Leave it at that. My seventh grade year, I was invited to play on the eighth grade team. Uh, it was the beginning of my great and illustrious uh, athletic career. Um, and I played on the Jerling Junior High Jayhawks. We were really good, right? We won, that year, we won our um, district tournament against the Orland Junior High Eagles. Uh, I sat on the bench as a seventh grader, but played some significant minutes, left side hitter, um, and I was one of the few seventh graders that were able to play on the uh, eighth grade team. Among some of the other seventh graders that played on that team were the Schaefer twins. There were two of them. The Schaefer twins, Chris and Charlie Schaefer were tall, athletic, blonde, blue-eyed, perfect, strong. It was already unfair, right? They, they were the most popular. They were the most athletic. And it was widely known that they were popular and all that stuff. But it was also not a huge secret that these Schaefer twins were also the biggest potheads in the school. So me being a self-righteous eighth grader, I knew that this would be their downfall, that this would be what brings them down, and I was a self-righteous eighth grader that was going to overthrow the Schaefer twins and take my starting position. And so, all of this, though, paled into comparison to what really made me frustrated. What made me frustrated was, during our seventh grade year, these Schaefer twins, because, you know, they just had this given ability to play volleyball in all sports, and they were popular and all that stuff. They did not care a lick about the volleyball season. They, they went through the whole season not even caring, not even trying. Practices were just practices. Games weren't, you know, anything special. And they just coasted through the whole volleyball season. And they did pretty well. And you can just tell 
that they did not care or put in any effort into this thing. Charlie was the brother that I was in competition with. He played the same position that I played. And uh, when he was on the court, I was. And so I was determined that summer before my eighth grade year that I was going to put in the work and I was going to dethrone these Schaefer twins, Charlie specifically, and take my starting spot. So I bought those uh, jump training shoes. You guys, anyone done that? Jump training shoes. Uh, I would train for four hours a day, conditioning my body so I can jump higher, run faster, be stronger, hit harder than I've ever, been before, uh, ever done before. And that summer, I put in some serious work. I joined um, a traveling volleyball team that went around the Midwest, and we played some tournaments and stuff. And, and I put in some work because I wanted to show everybody my eighth grade year when I came back that hard work pays off. And when you put in the work, when you put in the effort, the results are going to show. So I came back to school that summer. I was taller. I was stronger. I was faster. I can jump higher. And uh, we, we came into the gym. You can imagine how I walked into the gym. I was, you know, stronger, a little bit taller. I was still, you know, skinny. Um, but I walked into that gym like I owned it. And then 10 minutes later, you see the Schaefer twins walking in, right? They're late as usual. They got the, the baggy shorts. They got the dirty shoes that aren't even gym shoes. You know, they got like the air walks on. I don't know if you guys remember what those were. But they walk into the, the gym. It's like they've never been into the gym since last year. So it's like their first, you know, time back into the gym. You can just tell that they have not even thought about volleyball all throughout the summer. So the drills start and the practice starts. Something was off. Charlie was hitting the ball just as hard as I was during those drills. And to my amazement, he was running and and moving on the court just as fast or even faster than I had remembered him to in in the previous year. I couldn't believe it, right? I put in all this work, all this effort. I bought the jump training shoes. I joined the traveling team. I put in all this work, and it still didn't pay off. To add insult to injury, guess who started first game. Charlie Schaefer. Later on, I started, so that's all good. It all, it all worked out. But have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever had that feeling where you put in all this work and effort, and then all that happens, you fall flat on your face? Right? The feeling when you're trying so hard, but everyone else is getting further than you or reaping more benefits than you. It's frustrating, right? We've all been there. You feel like you should have some sort of return on your investment, but you get nothing back, right? Um, The people of Malachi had that attitude. They were under that sort of feeling, right? They felt like their worship didn't matter, that their worship wasn't worth it, right? Um, You would, um, in in that day, they were two generations removed from the people that had rebuilt the temple and had seen the glory days of the temple and their worship in the temple. And so they had remembered the promises of, of their father saying that when we sacrifice, when we are faithful to God, then these things will happen. Blessing will come upon the nation, right? But what had they seen so far? They had seen none of that. None of the glorious results that they were promised, and they were wondering, man, what, are, what is all this about? What are all these promises about? Because I have not seen any of it. They grew up hearing about these promises. And they hadn't seen the benefits of it. 
right? All they had seen was a lackluster temple worship. All they had seen was a, a, a very compromised and unimpressive Persian rule. Israel was supposed to be a great nation by now, but they hadn't seen it happen. So they became slowly disillusioned with this whole thing, right? So their worship became nothing to them, right? How come I'm here worshiping God faithfully and nothing's happening? Why weren't our sacrifices turning into blessing? Why wasn't God listening to my prayers and my uh, desires and my calling after him? Was it even worth it to worship Yahweh? Right? It doesn't seem like it's making much of a difference here. I'm here worshiping daily and, and faithful to God in my sacrifices, and there are other nations that are worshiping idols, marrying uh, daughters of other gods, divorcing and cheating others, and they're just as well off as I am. And some might say they're even better off than I am. So you can see how the feeling of disillusionment had settled into these people. Right? You'd feel the same way too, right? You, imagine if you came into church and you were faithful to God. You were faithful to follow after him in every portion of your life. You were faithful to be uh, a, a, a good worker in your family, a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good mother. But then another brother or sister sitting right next to you blatantly disobeys God, blatantly goes after the desires of their flesh. And then you look at both of your lives and you compare and you say, well, that person is prospering and I'm just, you know, I'm under this sort of suffering. What is going on here? The tables don't seem to, to work out. You can imagine how that feeling would settle into your soul how that desire to just say, well, this doesn't matter anyway, would just fall right into place. Right? Have any of you guys felt that? None, none of you guys have dealt with looking out into the world and, and saying, well, look at those guys. They get to do whatever they want. They get to you know, go into the desires of their flesh. They get to live out all their dreams and desires, and look, they're prospering. They're doing just as well or even better than I am. Right? None of us have felt that, right? But if you have felt that, that attitude would totally cut the legs out under holy worship. It's this attitude that begins to ask the question, does God really exist? Does God really delight in good? Or does God maybe delight in evil? And if that's true, then where is this God of justice? Does he even exist? So that's where we pick this up in Malachi. We've already heard the people of God asking this question. What does God delight in? Maybe he delights in evil. Where is this God of justice? Does he exist? Right? We're already in the fourth disputation of this book, this Old Testament oracle. Remember how this is all organized? God speaks a word, and then the people dispute God's word, and then God disputes the people, proving his point, making light of the truth of his character and his work. So God's people had become so disillusioned in, by this time, so complacent, so compromised in their covenant worship, that they looked around at the, all the other nations and said, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Right? I'm 
prospering just as much as they are, or they're prospering way more than I am, what's the point of my right and holy covenant worship? They began to question God's very character and accusing him of delighting in evil. And even more, they questioned if he existed. Okay? So that's exactly what we've seen so far. That's exactly what we've seen so far in Malachi's day, right? We've seen the people of God, the priests of God, giving shoddy sacrifices because they're like, what's the point? It's not worth it. We've seen the people of God trying to deceive God in their worship because they say, what's the point? It's not worth it. We've seen the people of God marrying daughters of foreign gods because they're like, what's the point of right and holy covenant worship? So, I'm going to read this passage again for us, and I want you guys to hear how God plans to act, how God plans to intervene in his way. And I want you to listen to closely that God plans to do something. All right, so I'm going to read this for us in Malachi. You've already heard it, but listen closely to what God plans to do, starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And here it is. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppose the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word that reminds us how you plan to work. We thank you for your word that reminds us of your promises, that they are good and true, that your word is often timely, to speak into our situations and into our history, into our time. God, we thank you that you speak through your word. May you do that today. May your spirit illumine this word, make it clear. May our hearts be cut to worship and to, to return to you in right, holy, covenant worship. Do that for us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's unpack this. Chapter 3, verse 1, okay? In the midst of his people, who are questioning his character and his existence, God squashes, immediately squashes all hesitancies, all heresies, all questioning, and says he will act. He's going to do something. 
He won't let evildoers get away with their actions. And so this would have been some welcome words for his people. He says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We just had our first Jesus sighting, right? In the book of Malachi, we just had our first Jesus sighting. I know all scripture speaks of the fulfillment in Jesus, but this was the first explicit sighting, first explicit saying that Jesus will come in the book of Malachi. How do we know that? First, God says he's going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for who? Me, him, himself. So there's really someone that's going to go out, speak a message, and it's going to prepare the way for God. So that narrows it down. Okay? We've got a couple, cho- few choices here. So there's going to be someone that proclaims a message, prepare the way for God. Then he picks up and says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The word used for Lord, Adonai, can be translated master or Lord. But the ten times it's used in this tense, in the Old Testament, every single time it talks about Almighty God, the Lord God. It's in reference to God. Not only that, Malachi says that this Lord whom you seek, right? So what's the, what's the question? You're, gonna, you're seeking this person. He's coming. Well, what were the people seeking? They were seeking the God of justice. So again, this person who's coming is God. He's the God of justice. Not only that, so that we're really sure of who this person is, he says this person, this God, is coming to his temple. There's really only one person that can say to the temple, mine. It's Jesus. If that wasn't enough, Malachi repeats himself and says, that this person, this God, this Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, uh, is the messenger of the covenant. And we know that Jesus is not the one that abolishes the law, but comes to fulfill it. So again, this is Jesus' promise to come. God is going to send Jesus to his temple. The people were griping about all this injustice that was being done, questioning whether covenant worship was worth it. And so God's answer to his people is, that, is to say that the future messenger of the covenant will come. The owner of the temple will come. The boss is returning to take it back. He's going to clean the whole place up. So you'd feel at this point, as a people of God, you'd feel like, right, good, good. God is coming. Right? We're the righteous ones. We're the ones that are sacrificing every day in the, in the temple. And we're going to be, we're going to see all those evildoers uh, come to justice. They're going to get what they rightly deserve, what their actions deserve. Those other people, those bad people out there, they're going to get what's coming to them, right? You would feel that way. But then Malachi continues in verse 2. He says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, when Jesus appears? It's a rhetorical question, right? 
the resounding answer to this question is no one. No one can stand when Jesus comes back to his temple. Not you or not the evildoers. No one. You see, what the people of God forgot was that their right covenant worship needed to depend on the God of the covenant. They were feeling self-righteous. They were feeling like, well, God's going to intervene on my behalf because I'm the righteous ones. They were the ones on their high horse thinking that their right sacrifices, their right actions, their right words curried some favor with God and they were going to be left out of this, this judgment. And they began to think their sacrifices, their devoted worship would mean that God would not judge them but judge everybody else. So that's why they, became to be, they came to be frustrated with their lives in comparison to others, right? Because they thought, well, I'm righteous, and I'm doing these righteous things, and these evildoers are not doing righteous things. They're doing unrighteous things, and so we should be left. They should be judged. Right? We go one of two ways when we're faced with this kind of disillusionment with covenant worship. One, we either join right in with the evildoers. We just go on and sin because we say, well, what's the difference? What, is it, what does it make a difference that I am holy before God? I can just go on and do whatever I want because it looks like they're prospering just as much as I am. Or we can sin by being ones that are proud, right? Happy and and glad that we're the righteous ones. We do all the right actions. We say all the right words. We do all the right things in right service to God, and we should be left alone. But as Malachi correctly points out, when Jesus comes to his temple, no one can stand. Nobody. When Jesus comes, no one can endure the day of his coming by themselves. Apart from the grace and mercy of God, no one can stand straight up before Jesus. See, the covenant people forgot that. In other words, their, our worship of God, apart from God, always comes to nothing. Malachi lays it out like this in verse 2. He continues, he says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. All right. What he's saying is that when Jesus comes in judgment, his judgment will be like a fire. It'll be like a refiner's fire. All right. There's two types of fires. There's contained fires, and there are uncontained fires. Either you have an uncontained fire that burns everything in its path, burns out of control, and burns everything that gets in its way. Or you have a contained fire that only burns what it's given to burn. To make it plain, you either have a fire that destroys your house and all your neighbor's houses, or you put that fire in a fireplace. Right? In other words, a forest fire something that you run away from because it's fearful. It'll destroy everything in its path. But a campfire, something that you go towards, that you welcome. What Malachi is saying is that Jesus comes as a refiner's fire, a campfire contained. It's not something that you should be running away from in fear. You should be actually welcoming it, going toward it. Jesus is a refiner's fire. 
fire. Now, this is important in light of what he just said in verse 2. Because what he said in verse 2 was, no one stands righteous before God. Nobody. So what you would expect is when Jesus comes to his temple and he sees that everyone's contaminated and totally polluted in sin, you would expect a forest fire, right? Just lay it all down. Lay it all down. But what does it say? It's God's grace to us that Jesus is a refining fire, a refiner's fire. God's grace is that Jesus is a refiner's fire. Let's think about what a refiner's fire is. A refiner's fire doesn't create something out of nothing. A refiner's fire doesn't build on top of something to make it better than it already is. A refiner's fire has a purpose and a goal. A refiner's fire renews or recovers some things, a thing's value by removing impurities or the things that make it worthless. So what does Jesus do when he comes? Jesus does when he comes is that he purifies us, his people, by removing sin, by removing all our worthless idols so that we can be recovered in value. Our sin is not something that we have a remedy for, right? Our sin is not something we have a remedy for. We can't do anything to remove the sin from us. We can't build on top of our lives to make it any better, to make it sinless. We We can't go to life class and learn all the rules to, to follow the 10 steps to make our lives better by removing our sin nature. We can't do anything to remove our sin. How, how many of you guys have tried to stop sinning? For those of you that didn't raise your hands, you're sinning. Uh, how many of you guys have tried to stop sinning, and how many of you guys have succeeded in that task ever? You're still sinning, right? We are in every way polluted by sin. We can't make ourselves clean. What that means is that we necessarily need someone else to make ourselves clean. We need an outside agent to act upon us to make ourselves clean. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why the gospel is good news. Here, God promises a messenger, Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, to come. And he will fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law and give to us his own righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness so that we stand righteous. Not only that, he does that forever and for good, once and for all. The gospel is that he is, his fire will cleanse us, remove our impurities, remove our sin, remove our iniquity, make us righteous before God. That's the gospel. His fuller soap will cleanse us, make us as white, at snow before a holy and awesome God. Jesus' refining fire will burn away all our impurities so that all that's left is what makes us valuable, the image of God, that we can now rightly image God's glory and show his value. So to top it all off, God's grace to you is in that work. But to top it all off, God's mercy is so much greater than you can ever imagine. Because what he says is that God acts in refining the sons of Levi. You want to know how amazing God's refining fire is? How amazing God's grace and mercy is? Read verse 3. He says, 
He will purify the sons of Levi, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. If you've been following the book of Malachi, that should just blow you away. You guys remember in in chapter 1 what we read about this disgusting thing that was happening in the temple? The sons of Levi, the priests, were bringing lame and sick animals and blind animals on the altar of God, profaning it, devaluing it. Remember when the priests were doing that? God promises that this messenger of the covenant, this Jesus, will come into that complicated, disgusting mess and he will clean it all up so that their offerings will be in righteousness to God. It's crazy. If Jesus can do that, if Jesus can get into that mess, clean it all up, and make it righteous, a righteous offering to God, then he can come into any of your life's messes, any of your complicated, dirty messes, and purify and cleanse that. That's good news. That's good news. All right. This is both a present reality and a future hope. It was in that day for Malachi's people, and it is in our day for us. Why? Because Jesus has already secured our life. He has already made us not guilty, removed our guilt. But we are not yet without sin. Not yet. We are still being refined day by day. We call this sanctification, right? That basically means that God is in the process of purifying you, of cleansing you. Not only will he remove all guilt, justification, but he will daily refine you, sanctification. And the process of sanctification is not without pain, let me assure you. The process of stripping away worthless things, removing impurities, is not painless. See this finger? Um, we, we were playing football, and it got twisted in uh, somebody's nameless, I won't say who it was, someone in the back over there, um, it got twisted in somebody's jersey, and it got twisted past the point where it can hold the tension, and it cracked. There was a spiral fracture. It was, if you looked at it, it was, it was not straight. It was turned to the left. And left to its own, it was bent to the left. So what I needed was a doctor to come in, take that finger, and bend it the other way. Set it back into place so that it could uh, heal straight so that I can use it the way it was designed. That's what happens in our lives. God, or our lives, are bent because we're sinful. Bend this way. God comes in, intervenes, and bends us straight and sets us so that one day we can completely heal and be used the way that we were designed to be used. And so, your very nature is being contradicted. That process is not painless. The doctor said, oh, you're going to feel a little bit of pressure when I do this uh, maneuver. That was euphemism for, you will feel a lot of pain when I twist your finger back into place the way it's supposed to be. It was not painless. It was painful. Your very nature is going to be contradicted. It's going to be bent back the other way. And that process is not pretty. But for your ultimate good so that you can heal straight. Malachi is saying that Jesus comes as a refining fire for your ultimate good. Because apart from your impurities being removed from you, apart from your sin being 
removed from you. We cannot stand before a holy and awesome God. Apart from his fire refining us, we cannot endure the day of his coming. So, how do we know that his refining judgment is for our good? Verse 4, this is beautiful. It's the crux of this passage. It's the hope for God's people. He says this. It reads, Then, after all the purifying, after I will cleanse you, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So there's the hope for God's people. God will come to judge you with refining judgment, to purify you, so that your worship to God can be righteous and acceptable before God. That's what Jesus does. Our worship to him, our sacrifices to him, are without hope apart from Jesus. So God promises to send Jesus to Malachi's people, saying Jesus will one day take your filthy rags and make them acceptable before God. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, right? Apart from his person and work, we are worthless. He makes our fumbling words beautiful songs to the ears of God. He makes our um, attempts, our sad attempts at sacrifice, beautiful acts of worship to God. He takes our filthy rags and offers it up as beautiful to God. Jesus refines and purifies us. He takes our rocks, our dirty, sandy rocks, cleanses it, and uncovers gold and silver. Jesus comes to refine. Then our offerings are accepted. All right. But just in case you thought Jesus was soft, just in case that you, saw, you thought Jesus, well, he forgives everybody, he makes sure that we know he will exact perfect judgment on any who do evil. Verse 5. He says, then I will judge. I will draw near in judgment. When Malachi says that, the picture that you should be receiving, at least the picture that they were hearing, was a judge walking into his courtroom, taking his seat on the stand. What happens when, that, when, when you see that? The whole courtroom comes to a hush. Everybody knows that the law is about to be upheld. The person that is guilty is shaking in his shoes. The person that is innocent is standing straight up because the judge has just walked in. He is going to lay down the law. That's the picture, the words that Malachi uses for his people. And then Malachi begins to list out all of the people that he will be a swift witness against. All the injustices that the people of God were complaining about God says he will judge perfectly. Right? This is a forest fire type of judgment. Lay him out. So what's the difference? What's the difference between verse 5 judgment and verse 2 and 3 judgment? What's the difference? Uh, verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it, there, there's a key to understanding what the difference is. At the end of this list of all the people that are going to receive complete judgment, a forced fire judgment, is a summary of who they are, the characteristic that defines them. It says, all of these people are people who do not fear me. 
That's Old Testament talk for people who do not love me, who do not trust me, who do not value me as their most prized, who do not see me as worthy. So the difference between the people that receive that type of judgment and refining judgment is whether or not they fear and love God. Right? So there's one simple application and one encouragement coming out of this. The promise of God to you, the promise of God to you is that Jesus is going to be sent. He says it, therefore it will happen. God says it, that does it, right? But what's imperative is that all other things, uh, all other things in this world should be seen through that lens. When we, whether or not we rightly value or fear him, matters. Because when we value Jesus more than anything, when we value Jesus as our most prized, necessarily what will happen is all other worthless idols will be stripped away from us. We will be refined. But if we don't value Jesus as our most prized, if we don't fear him, if we don't love him, then God will give us up to those things and we will get exactly what we deserve. So what Jesus is saying is that when he comes, he's going to exact refining judgment and and final judgment. So when Jesus comes, the question is, when Jesus comes back again, the question is, will you welcome his refining judgment for you? Will you welcome him removing all impurities from you, bending you back the way that you should be so that you could heal and be used the way that you were designed? And then a word to those, the pe- those people that are going through refining judgment, purifying judgment. All of us are or will be in our time. That's God's grace to you. That's God's great grace to you. God's great mercy to you. He is showing his love for you by doing that. You should praise God for his refining fire in your life. His great love towards you. Because what happens is now... That you, now that happens, your worship will be acceptable to God, this holy and awesome God. So I hope you see God's refining judgment as good for you. Seven Mile Road, God's refining fire is always at work in God's people. God's refining fire in God's people is always for your ultimate good and for God's glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you promised Jesus. We thank you that even then you knew we needed a Savior, that you knew we needed someone to remove us of our guilt, to purify us, and daily cleanse us. We thank you that you set us right, that you set us straight that you refine us, that you remove all impurities from us because we can't do it ourselves. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you that we now can stand by the blood of Jesus Christ and no other. We praise you, God, for your work in us. God, I pray that we would welcome refining judgment in our lives so that you can do your work for your good, for your glory. In your name we pray.